Hey guys, I, I just want to explain again why I'm doing what I'm doing, and we're just about finished with uh, half of it. <laughs> um, it was a trip to Israel that uh, prompted some thinking as a result of really visiting one site in Jerusalem known as the Temple of the Resurrection, the, the, the Church of the Resurrection. It was a lot of stuff that went on inside there that was so upsetting um, that it prompted me to come back and start looking at some things, only to discover that we uh, as evangelicals are under the anathema of the Roman Catholic Church. We are denounced as infidels um, because we uh, believe in a doctrine called justification by faith alone, which then uh, prompted me to say, well, goodness gracious, I need to figure out whether I um, should be should remain an infidel or try to do something about that. And I came up with this study that we're gonna, that we've been doing. We're almost done with it, um, on just looking at the, the differences between Protestantism and versus Roman Catholicism. We'll, we're, we're doing Sola Scriptura tonight and we'll do it next week and then, well, we won't do it next week. We'll do it the week after that. And then the four weeks of May, we'll look at Islam, which is the, uh, the other thing that was so, um, upsetting about the vision, uh, visit to Israel. I, I'll say this too, just, for, I don't know that we, this will even happen, but that, just stick it in your little computers. Um, we, we are, there's so many, uh, who went on that trip in, in October who would like to go again. So we're gonna, Lord willing, Lord willing, um, uh, try to do that again, but this time add a little something, uh, by taking a, a day-long trip into Jordan, uh, to Petra, which is something that I would really like to do is, is go to Petra. But anyway, uh, that's uh, Lord willing. Uh, nothing's been planned, but um, the winter of 2013. So keep that in mind. Okay, guys, um, again, we're looking at Sola Scriptura, the whole idea of um, uh, the, the difference in Protestantism, and it is a very significant difference indeed. Um, I, um, I want to just give you a quick little um, half of a sentence, which is a summary of the Protestant view of this whole issue of sola scriptura, which of course means scripture alone. Um, it simply states that scripture is the sufficient and sole authority. Uh, that, that's pretty easy to understand, that the scripture is the sufficient and sole authority, uh, one of the, the watchwords of the Reformation is that the scripture was the norm of norms with no norm. <laughs> um, scripture does not function uh, as first among equals. It is a norm without norms. It is the norm of norms without norms. Uh, no standard that judges it. It is the judge of all other standards. I'm going to read you just a, a sentence or two. Out of the Westminster Confession of Faith, which states this um, a little bit more formally, but this is this is sola scriptura encapsulated. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down in Scripture, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. That is Sola Scriptura um, defined in the Westminster. 
I, I guess the easier definition would be a sufficient and sole authority. Now, guys, in, in relationship to that, or, um, well, once Martin Luther had promulgated this whole idea of Scripture alone, the Roman Catholic Church, in, in response, called um, perhaps its most enduring and most influential council of all. It's called the Council of Trent. Um, it, uh, it was convened in 1546, and it was, it was concluded, gosh, 18 years, <coughs> pardon me, um, <coughs> that would be 17 years later, in 1563. There were 25 sessions, which covered three different popes. But any theology that comes from the Council of Trent, just to give you a term, is called Tridentine. Um, it's not a gum. It's, um, it's, if it's, if it's out of the Council of Trent, the Tridentine position, that's how you use the term. Okay, so I may be using it a couple of times tonight. But the two-source theory. Now, guys, I just read you that the Protestant position was that Scripture is the sufficient and sole authority. The Tridentine position was that there were two sources of authority. And I'm simply calling it the two-source theory was made the official dogma of the Roman Catholic Church at the Council of Trent at the fourth session in 1546. Ladies and gentlemen, I am saying to you that the official Roman Catholic position is that there are two sources of authority. That is, truth is found in both Scripture and in the tradition of the church. And by tradition... What the Roman Catholic Church means is tradition denotes unwritten doctrines handed down orally in the church. Now, I want to read you a question. I, actually, I read you this last week, but this comes out of the, um, the compendium of the Catechism of the Roman Catholic Church. This is question number 14. What is the relationship between tradition and sacred scripture? That is the question. Here's the answer. Tradition and sacred scripture are bound closely together and communicate one with the other. Each of them makes present and fruitful in the church the mystery of Christ. Now, these next words, ladies and gentlemen, are, are just critical. They, that is, scripture and tradition, flow out of the same divine wellspring and together make up one sacred deposit of faith from which the church this, um, derives her certainty about revelation. Did, did, did you get that last sentence, guys? There is two things, tradition and scripture. They both spring from the same sacred deposit, and they make up, excuse me, they, they spring from the uh, same divine well and make up one sacred deposit. Two sources. Tradition, meaning, that is, these oral um, um, uh, doctrines that were handed down, or these, these, um, these unwritten doctrines that were handed down orally, those plus scripture combine, make up one sacred deposit. And do you see why, I, why I'm calling it the two-source theory, I guess? Um, 
Now, guys, um, that was dogmatized. That is the official dogma. Did you ever take those ACT tests when you're in high school and they always did these vocabulary tests and they always had the word dogma in there? And I always had something to do with a pet. Um, <laughs> and I, I really became an adult when I finally figured out what the word dogma meant. Um, dogma has to do with doctrine. It's a, it's a synonym, okay? The official Roman Catholic position was dogmatized at the Council of Trent in 1546, and it is that there are two sources of authority, the Scripture and tradition. Unwritten doctrines handed down orally throughout the history of the church. By the way, um, it was dogmatized in 1546, but it had been around for a lot longer than that. Uh, it was first mentioned by... Um, uh, Basil the Great in the 300s and then was formalized by William Ockham in the 14th century and then, as I said, dogmatized, made the official position of the Roman Catholic Church in 1546. Um, in answer to the, the, the Protestants' cry of sola scriptura, Trent, or the Council of Trent, spoke of truths contained, quote, in the written books and in the unwritten traditions. Or, this is also a quote, the word of God is distributed over scripture and tradition. So to find truth, you had to consult two sources. The traditions of the church plus scripture or how vice versa. And consequently, not all of the truth that's available and, and believed by Christians is found in Scripture, according to Roman Catholicism. Uh, it is also found in the traditions of the church. But guys, I want to read you something, and, and I, um, um, I mean, you can, you can Google this too, but this was, um, this is not a, this is not an official position or a, a, a um, a piece of the catechism, but it was a tract, T-R-A-C-T, a tract that was written by a former friend of Martin Luther's in, in, in an effort to answer Martin Luther and what he was saying about one sole sufficient authority. This tract was written as in response to Martin Luther and was trying to uh, overturn the the uh, the Protestant Reformation in its position on the the one sola scriptura. The big issue in the tract became what is the church, and I want you to hear how the church is defined uh, by this man Sylvester Prieris. He was a the highest ranking curial theologian in the Dominican order, and the definition of the church. Because, ladies and gentlemen, this is Scandalous, and you will agree once you hear this. The church means the church of Rome, headed by the Pope, who is infallible and thus more authoritative than councils and even the Holy Scriptures themselves. There is no authority higher than the Pope. Now, now, this is hard to believe, what I'm about to read. There's no authority higher than the Pope. 
and he cannot be deposed even if he were to give so much offense as to cause people in multitudes to go to the devil in hell. Now, did you get that? The highest authority in the church is the Pope. Higher than the Holy Scriptures. And his authority is so high that he cannot be deposed, even if he were to cause, if he were to give so much offense, so as to cause multitudes to go to the devil in hell. And that, that's pretty frightening, ladies and gentlemen, um, because then you see where the authority resides. Um, John Calvin, uh, 50 or so years later, he gets into this fray um, and is trying to point out Rome's problem uh, by referring to the contradictions between the scripture and the Roman Catholic position. And what he is saying is, and I'm going to read him in a minute, but he says that what the Roman church says in terms of the contradictions between Protestantism and Roman Catholicism is the contradictions happen to be the interpretations of Scripture. Now, guys, you may not get that, but let me try to... All right, so there's contradictions. Okay, fine. But the contradictions occur because of the interpretations of the Scripture by the church. Now, do you see what that implies? That implies that the real authority is the interpreting that's going on via the church. So, whatever the church interprets this to mean, then that is the final say. So, you see, you're pointing out some contradictions, are you? No problem. Those contradictions are nothing more than the interpretations that the church, and the church, which is in, the church means the church of Rome headed by the Pope, who's infallible. So ultimately, ladies and gentlemen, the authority is not the scripture. It is not tradition. It is the interpretation made by the church on whatever they want to interpret, actually, the scriptures or tradition. Um, Calvin says, not one syllable of purgatory, of intercession of saints, or auricular confession and the like will be found in Scripture. But because all these things have been sanctioned by the authority of the church, that is, received by opinion and use, everyone will have to be taken as an interpretation of Scripture. You, you see, he's giving you some examples. He says, there's not one syllable about purgatory or intercession or auricular confession. Not one syllable of that found in the scriptures. But that doesn't matter. Because these things, once sanctioned by the authority of the church, becomes truth. Um... Calvin says, for instance, he gives some examples. Christ bids all to drink of the cup. 
in the Lord's Supper in Matthew 26. Yet the council of Constance forbade the the laity from receiving the cup. Paul refers to the prohibition of marriage as demonic doctrine. Paul, in the New Testament, refers to um, the prohibition on marriage as a demonic doctrine. And elsewhere, marriage is called holy in Hebrews 13.4. And yet priests are prohibited from marriage. Calvin goes on, if anyone dare open his mouth in opposition, he will be adjudged a heretic. Because the decision of the church is without appeal. And it is unlawful to question whether its interpretation is true. Do you see that, ladies and gentlemen? Do you see this enormous conflict that exists? It's not a small conflict. It's enormous. Um, Well, um, um... uh, you know, and I really didn't, I mean, I said this a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at transubstantiation and all. I did not know that the, why the Roman Catholic Church does not allow the laity to take the cup. I didn't know why. I, I still don't know why, but it was um, dogmatized at the Council of Constance. But the New Testament says um, that we were all to drink of the cup. The Roman Catholic Church says, no, the laity's not supposed to have it. And when you question that contradiction, the answer is, that is our interpretation of Scripture. Therefore, case closed. So, ladies and gentlemen, you tell me who the, the authority is. It is not the, it is not the Scriptures. It is not, it is not the church, excuse me, it is not the Scriptures that give the church authority. It is the church. That gives the scriptures authority. Should they decide to do that? Um, got more. Um, guys, again, the scarier thing for me is not the fact that there are two sources of authority. I mean, that's awful, scripture and tradition. The scarier thing is that the right to interpret either of these lies only in the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. And were you to question it? And and by the way, uh, I read you that last week. Um, This is question 16. To whom is given the task of authentically interpreting the deposit of faith? Now, remember what the deposit of faith was? That was in question 14. This is question 16. The deposit of, of, of faith is tradition and scripture. To whom is given the task of authentically interpreting the deposit of faith? Answer. The task of giving an, an authentic interpretation of the deposit of faith has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. That is, to the successor of Peter, the bishop of Rome, who's that? And to the bishops in communion with him. So who has a right to interpret the scriptures? Not you. Not you, buddy. And um, if you want to take the cup in uh, in communion, and you appeal to Matthew chapter 20, uh, 26... As to your right to have the cup in communion, 
Shame on you. Actually, that would make you a heretic because you have questioned the interpretation of the Roman Catholic magisterium. It, it is it is tyrannical, ladies and gentlemen. It is to be placed in the position of tyranny that I am not to ask, I am not to question, because I'll read the sentence again. It has been entrusted to the living teaching office of the church alone. Um, the Roman Catholic position today is that the magisterium of the church, just as I said, is considered, is, is considered, that is the one real source of truth, which has the effect of rendering the church autonomous. She answers, she's a law unto herself. She answers to no one once the interpretation has been made. Um, so, I began by telling you that, that the Protestant Reformation has a one-source view of truth. The single, sole, sufficient source of truth is the Scriptures. That's sola scriptura. And I, then I said, in comparison, the Roman Catholic Church has a two-source view, Scripture and tradition. And now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to take that back. Because the Roman Catholic Church does not have a two-source. They have a one-source. But it's just a different source than you and I have. We consider the Scriptures to be the sole, sufficient source of truth. For the Roman Catholic Church, it is the Roman Catholic Magisterium, and that is the Pope and the bishops in communion with him. That's what the Magisterium, we looked at that term last week. Um, that the single source of revelation in the Roman Catholic Church is the present Roman magisterium. Um, guys, this was kind of interesting too. Um, back in the 50s, there was all this discussion about science and sending a man to the moon and the, and I think Sputnik, when did Sputnik go up? Was that 1952 or so? And, and science, there was a lot of conflict between the church and science and evolution was a big thing, still is. And, um, um, and so the Roman Catholic Church issued a, a papal encyclical by Pope Pius XII. In fact, Pope Pius XII was the Pope who was in power during World War II. And some of you may have read the book. Hitler's Pope. Um, I've got a copy if you'd like to, um, but Hitler's Pope, because he um, was complicit in the, um, no, he, it is, it is, he is charged with being complicit, with um, allowing Jews to be exported out of Rome underneath the windows of the Vatican and be uh, exported to concentration camps. But that same Pope in 1950, because of the problems with science, he issued a papal encyclical called the Humana Generis, where he was really trying to define the, the, the role of the church in view of science. But this is what the thing says. It is the task of theology to show in what way a doctrine defined by the church is contained in the sources of faith, scripture, and tradition. Do you get that? 
The task of the theologian, I'll read it again, is to show in what way a doctrine, listen, defined by the church is contained in the sources of faith. So what is the role of the theologian? The church has announced a doctrine. Now your job as a theologian is to go find out where it is in there. If indeed it is. And if it's not in the scripture, don't worry. We can check the traditions of men. Do you see that the task of the theologian is not to discover what God has said? It is to, it is to find out what the church has said and then go get it in there somehow. That, that is right from, um, the task of the doctor, the doctor of theology, be he biblical scholar or church historian, is to read the latest, is to read the latest doctrinal decisions back into his sources. Do you, do you get that? My job, now that I know that um, Mary was perpetually a virgin, is to go find out where in the world <laughs> that is. And if I don't, don't find it in the scriptures, that's okay. Because I'll just read it back into tradition somehow. And that's my task. What that means in practice, ladies and gentlemen, is this. It means that Whatever the Roman church teaches now is tradition by definition. And thus, it is a part of the sacred deposit. So there's not two sources, ladies and gentlemen. There's only one. And that source is what the church teaches. Um, I, I don't know how I have time to read you this, but... Um, if whatever the church teaches now is by definition the unadulterated apostolic faith, then finding support in scripture or the fathers is really superfluous. Um, in effect, the Roman Catholic has, Roman Catholic Church has freed herself not only from scripture, but also from the burden of her own past authoritative doctrinal decisions. Now, the example that's given here, she has freed herself from trying to find something in the scriptures. But she's got another problem. And the other problem is that there is a tradition and um, th that is considered a part of the sacred deposit. And in the tradition, there are contradictions. An example, um, the papal bulls, Unum Sanctum and Contate Domini, expressly state that there is absolutely no possibility of salvation for any man outside of visible union with the Roman Catholic Church and subjection to the Bishop of Rome. Do you understand that? In two papal bulls, it was said that nobody can be saved outside of the Roman Catholic Church and subjection and submission to the Pope. 
However, Vatican II, that took place in 1962 through 65, expressly allows for the possibility of salvation not only for non-Roman Catholic Christians, but also for Jews, Muslims, pagans, and even those without an explicit knowledge of God. Now, ladies and gentlemen, um, those two things contradict each other. You got two papal bulls saying you can't be saved unless you're in the church. Now in 1965, not only do you not have to be a part of the Roman Catholic Church, you don't even have to understand what God. You can be a Jew, a Muslim, it doesn't make any difference. Now, apart from the contradiction of those two things, here's the bigger issue. The bigger issue is how then does the church reconcile those two? Very easily. By another papal, papal encyclical, which then becomes the tradition of man, and that solves all the problems. And so, ladies and gentlemen, they can solve any problem they want by creating more truth. You know, guys, I don't know whether you understand this or not, but um, one of the things I read you out of the, um, the Westminster Confession of Faith, you probably didn't get this. Um, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the Spirit or traditions of men. Now, do you know what the Westminster Confession is saying there? They're saying, revelation has ceased. You you know what revelation is? That is God revealing truth. It is over. It's done. It's finished. Not for Rome. Why there's new things happening all the time. I mean, as... As, I mean, what is that, 35, 45, as 50 years ago, you don't have to be a member of Roman Catholic Church anymore. You don't even have to have any knowledge of God. Where did that come from? Well, I don't know who, from whom it came, but you know what? The scary thing is, tomorrow, it might change again. And then, where are you going to go? Then who are you going to believe? You know, when my mother and daddy, when I was a kid, I mean, this is a small thing, but it just illustrates the point. When I was a kid, um, and my mother and daddy used to play bridge with a couple, um, I won't use their name, but the, the, the man had a really funny first name, and they were Roman Catholics. And they would play bridge every Friday night. And my, me and my sister would go. They had some kids and we would play and, you know, and we, we didn't care, you know. They played, um, bridge and, but it was always on Friday night. And so, you know, uh, back when I was a kid, um, I mean, this is early fifties, um, 1950s, uh, <laughs> um, that Roman Catholics were to eat fish. You couldn't eat meat. So you had to eat fish. But that's changed. But I'm telling you, this couple that my mother and daddy played bridge with, 
They ate fish religiously because of the church told them that was the law. But that got changed. So all of that fish eating, when they could have had hamburgers, got wasted. Guys, I'm not trying to make fun, but other than to say, that's an insignificant truth that got changed. Yes, this one is not. About whether you got to be a member of the Roman Catholic Church or not. That was 1965. That means I was uh, 17 years old. When I was 17, they changed the rules about how it is that you got saved. When I was 17. So, what prevents there from being another change? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Because revelation continues. It continues to the Roman Catholic Magisterium. In Protestantism, we have one sole sufficient source of authority. And it is not to be added to nor subtracted from. And my job is not to go take my theology and find it and put it in there but to take it and draw out of it what God has said. And that is supposed to be enough for us. Our Father, I, I do pray that you'll help us sort out this business. Um, it is not, it's not fun uh, to realize the uh, enormous differences that do exist. Uh, not not small differences, not insignificant differences, but uh, critical ones. And I pray that you will confirm us um, in the truth, wherever that is to be found. Uh, Lord, where my words have been in error, would you stop up the ears of your people? But where I have spoken uh, that which is in accord with you and your word, would you bury it in our hearts? And we ask it, of course, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you and good night.